Hello, everyone. You are tuning in to Grit and Glamour, an interview series featuring honest conversations with fashion change makers to share both the grit and glamour of what it really takes to lead and succeed. I'm your host, Ruby Veridiano, and welcome to another episode of Grit and Glamour. Welcome to Grit and Glamour, an interview series featuring honest conversations with fashion change makers on what it really takes to lead and succeed. I'm your host, Ruby Verdiano, and on today's show, I have Dr. Tanisha Ford, a scholar, cultural critic, historian, and author of books such as Liberated Threads and Dressed in Dreams. And on today's conversation, we're going to be talking about fashion from a social, cultural, and political lens, which is actually one of my favorite ways to talk about fashion. So I'm really excited for this talk. And we're also going to be breaking down how fashion has outfitted social movements, how Black women have used fashion as a form of resistance, and most importantly, how we can all create and cultivate space for more Black freedom in fashion and beyond. I'm so excited to welcome onto the show, Dr. Tanisha Ford. Tanisha, how are you? Hi. Hi, Ruby. So great to be on the show. It's so awesome to have you. I love your background. You are so ready for this uh, experience. Yes. So I, um, you know, I come from an ethnic studies background. So the way that you talk about fashion comes very naturally to me. Uh, but however, I, I transitioned into the fashion industry formally in 2014 when I moved to Paris. And uh, it's, it, I realized that it's actually not natural for a lot of people. When people in the fashion industry think about fashion and fashion professors, they think about professors who teach on merchandising, design, and so forth. But you talk about something very different and something really potent and powerful. So can you, let's start off by having you talk about, you know, your basis um, as a scholar, um, as a historian and how it intersects with fashion. It's so interesting that you bring up your ethnic studies background because I too come from a black studies background. And Mm -hmm. in black studies, of course, we're thinking about power dynamics. We're thinking about structures, structures of empowerment, but also structures of oppression. So when I went off to receive my PhD in history, um, I wanted to continue some of those threads that were so central to my work in black studies. Um, And I thought that one way to think about the everyday way that people engage in social movements is through dress, the thing that we do every day. So no, I didn't at all come from a fashion background, not from a traditional design, merchandising, textile production background, but I was thinking about the everyday ways that black women use clothing to express who they are, to resist in small ways and large ways. So that had really formed my thinking. It's like, what's a fresh way to think about the civil rights black power movement era? And I found that once I started having those conversations that I was joining a collective of people who too were thinking about dressing this way, think about hair and beauty and makeup in a similar way as well. So it was refreshing to see that I wasn't the only one asking these questions. And I think that as a community of of thinkers and doers, we were able to shift the conversation away from clothes that had no bodies in them to thinking about what happens if we center bodies in conversations about, about clothing and dress and the artifacts that we adorn ourselves with every day. 
Yes. And I love that because I feel like there's so many people who assume that fashion is a superficial thing, right? Like it's vanity. It's just about the outside. But actually, if you really break it down, fashion has played such a role in defining generations, defining history even. So I really appreciate your approach. Um, I want to um, just preface the way that we met because I think it was so awesome and it's so um, telling of our own journeys. We met in the middle of a street in Amsterdam <laughs> because you were there um, on a sem summer seminar, as I understand, and I was with academics as well. So it was like, you know, basically we crossed the street and we met up and then it was just, you know, kind of a nice serendipitous moment. And then you came to Paris a few weeks after. So it's just awesome to connect with people in that way and to yeah. um, really align with people who value the same things that I do in the fashion world. So yeah, and maintain that relationship over years. That was years ago at this point. <laughs> that was years ago at this point. And I also love that you're also, you know, a woman of color who's out in the world doing things. I think that a lot of times we want, I, I, I'm always in that space of wanting to inspire young women, um, especially women of color to travel and to just live their dreams in that way. So I, I love that you are also an example of that. Now, how, I want to know too, like, how did you begin your journey? Because, um, it, it, it maybe there has been some, uh, you know, milestones along the way that has allowed you to come across that like moment when you realize that you can actually intersect your work as a scholar and as a historian with fashion. Was there a specific moment that triggered that? You know, it was interesting because in graduate school, one of my best friends, uh, Dr. Siobhan Carter David, she was work doing work on fashion and she was calling it fashion. Like I'm doing, I'm studying fashion. And at the time I was not, I was doing work that dealt with the culture of the civil rights and black power movement era, looking at people like Nina Simone and Odetta and Miriam McCabe and how they incorporated African inspired fashion and hairstyling into their stage adornment, their stage costumes. But I would say for me, the change happened after I accepted a dissertation fellowship in London. And I spent that academic year in London and shopping my way through London, <laughs> building communities with other people from across the African diaspora in London, and really seeing um, the, the ways that um, public history and community history was overlapping with my idea about blackness and travel, and then also the dress piece for me, you know, and I was discovering a new side of myself as I was, you know, participating in the street fashion of London. And then from London, I left and just traveled through Europe, other countries in, in Europe. Um, and that's the first time I went to Paris, for example, was that that year. Um, and so I came home with a renewed sense or a new sense, not even renewed at that point. That was my first time abroad, like a new sense of the world and how culture connects us across the Atlantic, you know? And so I think that's when I came back also borrowing the language of my good friend, Siobhan Carter David and saying, oh, well, there are these fashion elements of what I'm studying and just starting to be bold enough to claim that in an academic space for which doing so was not the norm, particularly for people in history departments. Yes, and that actually is a perfect uh, link to my next question because um, I, I, academia is kind of a, uh, a tight knit world, right? And it, there's a lot of rules in academia. 
Um, so do you get pushback sometimes as in, to, in regards to your approach to fashion and even the way that you present yourself, right? Because an academic is sometimes expected to look a certain way. Um, and I remember when, you know, th there's times when I would go to universities and I'm always questioning, should I wear this or should I wear that? Is that too much? You know, so tell me about your kind of experience in that. Yeah, you know, you, you hit it right on the head when you say that there are these rules and the the trickier part about it is like the same with most industries, most of the rules are unwritten. So you don't really know, and especially as women of color who weren't necessarily raised to then join spaces like the academy, we don't know those rules. And those, those systems are set up to keep us from knowing the rules and therefore then we, we struggle to make rank and receive promotions, et cetera. So when you combine that with fashion and the fact that I show up with a bold lip, you know, <laughs> to panels, to you know, faculty meetings, et cetera, I mean, it's definitely a thing that makes you stand out in certain ways. Some ways were great for me and I used it to my advantage. I, created very early in my career, I created this public persona of myself as someone who was well-dressed and well put together and, and who loved clothes. Um, and, and that helped me create an identity for myself in a very crowded intellectual space. Wow. But also it's a thing that does make you stick out and it makes people wonder like, hmm, if this person has time to put on a bold pink lip, are they then spending enough time on their scholarship? And I think that, uh, Black women, women of color, queer folks, um, people whose religions fall outside of like a Western religious framework. You know, we we have a target on our back in certain ways because we are hyper visible. Um, but I've also found a community of, of like minded people who, too, were kind of saying, you know, forget the academy as it's been done before. We're going to do it in a new way and we're going to use social media to help us do it. We're going to travel to places like Amsterdam and Johannesburg, South Africa. And we're going to put it all over our social media. You know, like we, we just found ways to flip it. And here it is now, I'm a full professor, you know, because my scholarship was there. It was strong, yeah. it's been well received in the academy and outside of it. And I've been able to climb the ranks. It wasn't always an easy journey, but I'm here. And now I sit at this place as one of few black women full professors. And that's something I'm actively working to change. I want to expose those hidden rules so that others of us can come here too, you know, who desire to be here, that we can find ourselves, you know, in, in the rank of full professor. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Because not only do you have to be brave, but you also, as I hear from your uh, recollection, it's like you found your community. So you had support. But then you're also like, wait a second. Also, I'm delivering excellent quality work. So, yeah. and it comes with a bold lip. So that's just all hitting all of the points. Um, so thank you for that. And I'm sure that there's so many people who are able to kind of then now look at academia very differently because you're, you know, not only have you learned the rules, but you're learning how to break them um, in a way that works uh, that works for you, so that it recreates new structures and new doors will open for other people. Um, so in your book, Liberated Threads, you talk about, you know, how black women have used fashion as a form of resistance. Can you give us some examples to help us contextualize that? 
Yeah, you know, that book, uh, My First Baby. I love that <laughs> book so much. <laughs> in that book, I, I it was, um, like I said, I spent some time in London, and that really helped me to see that there are these global resonances of what in the United States we were calling soul culture. So you know, if you think about Black power, soul power, those words being interchangeable. And uh, I was looking at how Black women were using things like Afros and cornrows and um dashikis and African printed skirts and dresses and heels and, you know, kari shells as forms of expression. But then it wasn't just just that. They were also incorporated those things into their activism. So I looked at everything from the women of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who used denim overalls of sharecroppers to align themselves with with working class farmers across the South who have been act activists in that region for years. Um, and they were using it as a way to combat the politics of respectability. I looked at um, black women like my mom's generation and how they were using leather and how leather became a symbol of the Black Panther Party um, in both in the United States and in London, where the first the first independent chapter of the Black Panthers formed in the late 1960s. Um, and then I also looked at, at Black women in South Africa who were wearing hot pants and stiletto heels as a way to, yes, transgress the politics of respectability, but also when they'd be at these marches against apartheid, they would use the shoes as potential weapons against police wow. officers who might attack them. So I was literally thinking about the ways that clothing showed up as a weapon of resistance, you know, literally and then also figuratively and the political language that came with that and how these women were shaping a political discourse um, and using clothing as a way to do so. Oh my goodness. That just got me so excited. And I feel like I need to do more research. Uh, yeah. in just our daily lives, right? As women of color moving around the world, there is, we still have to deal with like, the politics of respectability, right? Like for example, I live in France and as a Filipino woman, a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of French people who have only seen Filipinos as um, domestic workers. So when they hear Filipino, they think, they automatically align it with, oh, it's, you know, it, you're, you're, you're a maid or you're a house, you know, you're, you work it as a house staff. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course, because Filipinos come in so many, you know, those are, those are really the heroes of the Philippine, of the Philippines. But at the same time, we're multi-dimensional. And so I think when we are able to use um, clothing as a way to speak for ourselves before we even say a word, that's also, it, uh, there's an intent and a power in that. Um, so I appreciate you kind of giving that context because I really do think that like there's so many people who think about fashion as just like, oh, this is like a, a vanity thing. It's not. It's a way, as you said, it's a weapon of resistance. It's a way to really show up um, in the way that you can address, address how you want to be addressed. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Um, and so will you also talk about how it has outfitted social movements. Can you help me unpack that a little bit? You know, so when I think about social movements, we think about how people who are engaged in protests and day-to-day -day activism, how they come together or coalesce as a group and signify or you know, show the world that they are part of this collective with similar beliefs, with a similar approach to change. They do that by creating a uniform of sorts, 
right? So um, like I said, for SNCC, that was the denim overall. For the Black Panthers, it was a leather jacket and the beret. Um, for, for the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, we, we see the popularity of T-shirts, message tees with things from hashtag Black Lives Matter to, you know, Asada taught me, you know, like these shirts that that represent the politics of the movement in a very clear and easy way. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about the Women's March, once Trump was elected in the United States and we were all, oh my goodness, I don't even, I won't even go in, into my feelings about that person, but um the, the pink pussy hat became a symbol for that women's march for a lot of, of women. Um, it was something that was bright. It was something that could be photographed from far away. And it just looked like this mob of people who seemed to have the, a similar politic. Um, and so I've been invested in studying that. Like, how do people do that? And I think that what happens is you try to find a garment that represents a group that comes right out of working class culture. Like what is something that's been a part of our community and that represents our community? So people on the margins and on the margins of the margins are usually the ones who are saying like, hey, let's take something like, you know, um, a T-shirt or a hoodie that's part of hip hop culture and let's make that a symbol of our movement. We're not invested in respectability. You know, you see my tattoos, you see my ball cap. I mean, Tef Poe famously says this on Melissa Harris Perry's show years ago. You know, this is all a part of our generation of protest. This is what it looks like. This is how we show up. And it, I've just been studying that across time and space to see mm -hmm. how people of African descent have been doing this. And let me just say, because you raised a great point earlier, about um, Filipina culture and how you all are read uh, globally. And a lot of the frameworks for my work came from Asian historians, Asian scholars, and Asian American scholars, because um, people working in the Asian context and the African context have a really strong understanding of dress and how dress helps us understand the geopolitics of a space. So it wasn't an a American context that I was drawing from to create the frameworks for liberated threads in my subsequent work. It was definitely Asian and African scholars who were leading the way for me. Oh, I love that because it's a scene for me, like who I who I've been inspired by uh, in my activism have been Asian American and African American activists. So that's uh, awesome to have this conversation with you. Um, so we you talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. Obviously, this is a very powerful movement, an important one, um, and it has always been potent. But I feel like this year it's really reached a tipping point that people can't ignore anymore, right? Especially within the fashion industry. And just like the academia fashion has its own ivory towers, um, you know, there's a lot of gatekeepers in fashion and they're realizing, oh, we can't, you know, keep up these same antics <laughs> anymore, right? Because now there's a business incentive. Um, and not only is there a business, because, you know, when, we, when we're talking about trying to convince businesses and big enterprises to change. Um, of course, we want them to do the right thing, but sometimes the right thing for them, to, in order for them to really push the change, it has to be like, oh, there's a business incentive to this. And so you, we have seen a lot of performative, you know, um, allyship. So for you as, um, you know, as an expert in this world, and also as the way that you talk about fashion, I feel like there's a lot that people in the industry can learn from you so that a lot of these um, important movements, especially in dress, can't just be appropriated, right? There has to be a lot of context and real respect 
for the history so that it can be executed in a way that is uplifting for everyone. So um, for you, what would be your advice to gatekeepers in the fashion industry in order to cultivate more space for Black freedom in fashion? You know, it's so interesting because when Rihanna launched her Fenty line, the thing I loved about it uh, most was that she used the images of Kwame Brathwaite, a photographer whom I've been studying since probably 2008 mm. uh, for her initial campaign. And from those photographs and then the, the images of her, of her models in present day, you know, she was definitely forcing people to experience fashion through a black lens, through a black fashion heritage and through a black experience of being clothed and it being clothed in luxurious um, materials and textiles. And I really appreciated that because it wasn't really until that moment that I realized that as a, a young black girl growing up, if I thought about a Louis Vuitton handbag or a Gucci bag or Fendi or, or Christian Dior bag, um, I had to imagine it through an ad that featured someone who didn't look like me. So it meant that always luxury was something that was designed to be outside of the purview of my life experience, something that was supposed to be so aspirational for me, but I was never, ever supposed to be able to grasp onto it. And what I, I think needs to happen, one of the things, one of many things that need to happen in this industry is that we need to create more sustainable pipelines for black and brown designers to be able to enter into this space um, to really reshape how we imagine clothes and who they belong on when and why, you know? So that means that we have to diversify from the top. It's not just about the designers, it's also about who are the power brokers who are sitting at those tables um, de deciding whose line is going to be backed financially, deciding like what fashion is and what it looks like and if there's an audience for a thing. Um, but it's also the people who work in the marketing departments. It's the people who run the social media for these for these fashion mm -hmm. lines. You know, it's the design schools and who they admit and see potential in. How are they defining potential? You know, to to operate in these spaces, um, and that's just the visible part of the industry. Of course, mm -hmm. there's less visible supply chain in which we see all types of exploitation and waste and those things that you so brilliantly discuss on all of your platforms, Ruby. So, I mean, it's really a multi-pronged approach to change that I think that needs to happen. But on the more visible side of things, I mean, that pipeline just isn't there. And that's why I, one of the things I appreciated hearing Rihanna say was that she wants Fenty to be um, an incubator for new talent, that she wants to try to model the possibilities of what this could look like. Um, and, and I definitely think that that needs to be the case. And, you know, as a person who doesn't really have a seat at that table per se, but can use my whatever influence I have as a scholar and thinker whom these companies are coming to to ask me these types of questions. Um, these are the kinds of things that I would be pushing for. Yes, 100% on pipeline, right? Like, I think that that is definitely um, what we should all be aspiring for to be that pipeline opener, right? Like, mm -hmm. to be able to then usher in our people and really create that space for people to belong, but also to thrive and excel and show what uh, talent can look like if opportunity was aligned with possibility. So, 
Um, a lot of the folks that I talk to are young talents, young professionals. Um, a lot of them are aspiring to work in the fashion industry and are looking for more meaningful ways to participate, right? So what would be your advice for folks, um, you know, young professionals in the industry in terms of how they can actively cultivate space for Black freedom in their own way? You know, I think one of the ways, um, and we, we saw in this moment, and as you mentioned, a lot of it was lip service. It was like, oh, well, we care about black lives, so we're gonna put a post up on Instagram, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but then other people were trying to make space in ways like we need to have experts come in here and speak to us about diversity in our and inclusion in our spaces. And I would, for one, say, don't ever, so first of all, what, what's happening is, is that it's it's usually black women who are then charged with leading the diversity conversation in their place of employment, which I think is also problematic. They're already doing all the work of being, you know, black and, and a woman or, or you know, a, a non-binary person in that space. And then to make them then do the work to to right the company's wrongs, that's a lot. But then, to, but to then give them no budget to do the work and then ask experts to come in and speak to them for free, you know? And it's like, all of this is wrong, people. <laughs> Everything about it is wrong. So that's the wrong way to do it. I think the right way to do it is to create meaningful uh, partnerships with black organizations and, that are doing the work on the ground um, and to not overpower that space, but to see like, what does partnership and allyship look like for that particular organization? And then find some of those organizations that your, that your group or corporation or community um, of people with, with resources can partner with over the long haul so that you're not just doing some kind of one-off exchange. That's one of the ways. Another way is to perhaps create a, a program that has the kind of resources and backing that can bring people in as experts into your space to, to help you all rethink some of your approaches um, to production, producing fashion, around messaging, to, to ex explain the history of some of these garments so that you realize that it's not a European history to everything that was ever invented to be worn on the body. <laughs> yeah. So those are some of the things that immediately come to mind. Um, but again, those ideas don't necessarily come to the fore if you don't have black and brown people working for your companies. Like you need to have people in those places, in, in places of power and not just the one token, but uh, a cluster of people on various levels and various departments who can help really make lasting change. Yeah, 100%. I think that's, you hit it right on the head. It's it's about organizational change. It's not just about a one-time thing that gives you a reputation or that saves your reputation, holds it up, but it's really about long-term investment and systematic change that creates organizational cultural change that will then lead to better business decisions. So thank you. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your other baby, Dressed in Dreams, uh, which is growing up. Your Dressed in Dreams baby is turning into a teenager. She's about to go on her debut. Um, tell me about what's happening with Dressed in Dreams, because it started off as a book, but now it's launching into another manifestation. Um, tell us about that. You know what, first of all, let me just say, because you you are so much a part of Dressed in Dreams' story. I don't even know if you realize it, but you are, because 
uh, when I really started working on that book in earnest, I went to Paris. I was like, you know, I'm going to be inspired in Paris. I'm going to be inspired to write this book. And, you know, I'm going to do the black girl version of Eat, Pray, Love, My Way Through Paris, you know. And you and I met up for ice cream. And we had ice cream and we talked. And, and then I think later on, we even had a, a conversation about the work um, at some amazing rooftop, you know. So you were just a part of, of that, mm. the early drafts writing that with you know times i was in community with you and uh celebrating your birthday yes you did celebrate my birthday with me i was writing the book that whole time you know so uh yeah this book this book is really you know she was kind of birthed in paris in many ways (laughs) i'm so glad that i got i'm like a godmother Yes, <laughs> yes, you are. So, uh, you know, so I wrote that book and it was deeply personal um, in so many ways, so many unexpected ways. I didn't I didn't imagine that I'd write so much about my own life, but I, each chapter uses a garment, an iconic garment or accessory to talk about these very complex issues uh, related to class, gender, race, sexuality, to think about clothes. So everything from baggy jeans and bamboo earrings to the jerry curl and the afro. Like, I mean, it's, it's all of those things. Um, and the book was well-received. It really was. But then it, it, you know, I started having these conversations with Hollywood producers about like, oh, this is um, amazing. We want to develop this. And, and and in fact, one thing that people don't know is one of those first conversations with the producers of this project, Gabrielle Union and Frida Pinto, who of course are amazing actors and producers, happened when I was in Paris. I had that call from Paris. It was right before Paris Fashion Week. And we were on the phone, like, you know, having more some of the initial conversations about what this could look like as a scripted series. Um, and it's been wonderful to partner with them because they both just have such an amazing vision individually, but they're also really good friends and they've been wanting to find a project that they could work on together. And this is one that spoke to both of their commitments to center the stories of women of color and to really give, you know, to use their platform to launch those stories into the mainstream. And so it's just an, been an honor to partner with them and to think creatively about how we can reimagine this book. Um, on the small screen. That's awesome. I can't wait. That's going to be my, like, you know, it's going to be on my list at what, whatever it is. I don't know what platform it's going to be on, but it's going to be something that I'll be waiting, in, you know, patiently for. But you have to bring me back too, so I can tell you once it gets closer to, and I can tell you more about what's happening and Maybe talk we to your can audience. Celebrate and go back to that rooftop. Just yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rooftop and rosé in my future. Rooftop and rosés and celebrating the the launch of the TV project. That's awesome. <laughs> so there's a lot of young women that I, um, you know, that that we both, I'm sure, um, reach on through our work. Um, what you know, we talked a lot about travel, and I think there's so many young women, especially young women of color who don't feel like travel is accessible for them, right? Because they, they don't think that it's within their sphere. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't think that I would ever have the life that I have now. This is, you know, this is just a result of a lot of prayer and a lot of, you know, uh, uh, daring, right? So what would be your advice to them as they think about dressing their dreams in the most luxurious, you know, way possible? You know, what what would be your, um, 
your way to inspire and encourage them that all things are possible for them. Yeah, you know, I come from a very small city in Indiana, middle of the country, the part of the country that no one really thinks about. They definitely don't think about that part of the country when they think about black culture. Um, And it's definitely not described as cosmopolitan by anyone. Um, So I never thought I would live the life that I I live now either. Um, So when I wrote Dressed in Dreams, you know, I dedicated it to other girls and non-binary femmes um, such as myself who grew up in these factory towns, you know, where, where you weren't really supposed to be anybody and you were never supposed to leave, you know, to say, expand your your belief of what's possible for your life. And the reason why I felt empowered to do that is because I had to do exactly that. And there were these these small things along the way that helped me get there. I think fortunately I had parents who who for themselves had dreams beyond working in the factories, which as you said, there's nothing wrong with factory work. It's very honorable work. And a lot of my friends' families uh, put their kids through college working at plants like GM plant, et cetera. But, you know, we, we wanted to, my parents wanted me to understand as a young black girl that there are so many other things possible for you mm-hmm. than, than simply that or solely that. Um, and for me, one of the places with travel was that our, my family always traveled around the region. I think our farthest, our farthest trip might have been to Los Angeles. And that was a big deal when I was a young girl. But when I went off to boarding school and I saw that all of these you know, rich white kids were heading to the south of France for spring break or heading back to Brazil where their family was based or, you know, wherever. I was just like, whoa, wait a minute, people go out of the country? Like, it wasn't even something I understood as possible. So, you know, for me, that opened up another door to imagine what black travel could look like. And then I started to, when I went off to college and I started to study to see that black people have been moving around this world for centuries, you know, that I'm like, wow, travel is mine. It's available for me too. And I think part of it is that, you know, we we don't, we're not exposed to that every day. We don't know the history of black travel. We don't know, we don't know how easy it is. And I think social media has helped to break down some of those barriers with sites like Travel Noir and Nomadness who are encouraging black people to get a passport and go out and see some world, you know, go see that world. And I think that that's been a beautiful thing to see, but it, I think it all starts with reimagining what's possible, vision boarding a future for yourself, you know, that no matter what anybody says to you, that you know that these are my dreams and my goals. And if I believe in these things and I even take one step towards making them happen, I believe the universe will take five steps toward to us to make those things happen. Exactly. My thoughts, exactly. And then the last thing I would add to that is just don't be afraid to take up space, you know, take up space, you know, and just know and know that, you know, um, it's that world is possible for you too. You could live in in whatever world that you want to live in. You can design your life how you want. I love that you said vision boarding your life because that's where it all begins, right? If you can't see it, you won't believe it. So hopefully um, the folks who are watching can see and learn from your example. And uh, and if there is a young fashion academic, she's going to show up tomorrow with a bold lip <laughs> on her Zoom class. <laughs> so, yeah. so the last thing I want to ask you is for those who want to follow your work, where can they find you? 
You know, I'm on social media. Um, I'm sure that my team wishes I was on social media even more, but I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> I'm working on a new book, so I kind of duck and dive out of it every once in a while. But on Instagram and Twitter, they can find me at Solista PhD. That's S O U L I S T A. PhD. Um, my website, TanishaCFord.com, has information about all of my books and where people can purchase those books. But it just tells you a little bit more about my, my life journey and my professional journey as well. And then there's also links to all of my, my past media. So if you want to hear me, hear more of my, me on these topics, definitely um, check those things as well. And then I think I have a Facebook Facebook page. It's Tanisha C. Ford. Um, PhD or something like that on Facebook. So yeah, I am around and I love messages. People send me notes sometimes through my website. I love getting those things. Um, I love hearing from everyday people, from other academics, from producers, from fashion industry folks. Just send me a note. I, I'm good about responding um, and I love hearing from people and being in communication. Yes. Well, thank you for joining me on today's episode, Dr. Tanisha Ford. I'm so glad that we got a chance to connect and I'm so happy to be able to tell your story as well. So for those of you watching out there, thank you for tuning in to another episode. As always, we broadcast every Saturday. And if this episode inspired you, please do share with a friend. Here's to all the grit behind the glamour. Until next time. Bye. If this episode inspired you, do share with a friend. Here's to all the grit behind the glamour. Until next time.